Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast. My name is Natalie Nahai, and in the second series, I'll be exploring our relationship with the living environment. These 10 intimate conversations will touch upon everything from psychology, sustainability, and human behavior, to political and economic systems, and the narratives we inhabit to make meaning of our place in this world. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast. Today, I am really excited to be interviewing a very special author, Paul Francis, a psychotherapist, shamanic practitioner, teacher, writer, and founder of the Three Ravens College of Therapeutic Shamanism in North Wales. With a background in philosophy and anthropology specialising in tribal cultures, Paul has worked in hospitals, he's taught sign language, studied complementary medicine and various spiritual traditions, and he's been a practising psychotherapist and supervisor for the last 30 years. He's the author of a fantastic series of books on the subject of therapeutic shamanism, and he also runs courses in shamanic practice across the UK. I came across his work last year when I read The Shamanic Journey, a deeply moving and really practical book that explores the history and practice and importance of various shamanic traditions in today's world. And citing these kinds of shamanic practices as fundamental to our reconnection both with ourselves and with the living environment, I really wanted to bring him onto the show to explore how our worldviews and relationship with nature can influence and shape the ways in which we perceive it. Um, so, Paul, thank you so much for, for joining me in conversation today. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for asking me. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Pleasure is all mine. Um, so before we dive in, I'd like to start by asking you about definitions, because these days the word shamanism is often used as a very broad, often catch-all term for a whole range of animist, pantheist and mythic traditions. So I'd like to ask, start by asking, what does the word shamanism or shamanic practice even mean to you? Well, <laughs> that's actually starting with probably one of the most controversial questions. <laughs> um, there's a lot of arguments uh, within the shamanic community about this. Um, so I'd have to preface what I'm about to say mm. by saying that this is just my um, opinions on it. I mean, it's a bit like um, religion or politics or football. Everybody's got <laughs> their own opinion on things. The word originally comes from the Evenki people who lived in the Mongolia-Siberia region. Mm. And it was the term they used to describe their spiritual practice. And there are some practitioners who uh, still want to restrict the term to Evenki or Evenki-like practices, but I tend to take a much broader view on it. And this is largely because sham, the word shaman has meant the English language um, from what we know about 500 years ago. Mm. And its use has uh, changed radically um, over that time. It no longer just describes that particularly culturally specific uh, practice. So there are five characteristics uh, for me of shamanism so i'll give you the sort of bullet point versions of them Mm. so shamanism is a part of animism and animism is the 
experience that everything is alive and conscious. And I say experience um, because this is not a belief system. It's not uh, like we think of religions. There's no leap of faith involved in this. Before we discovered agriculture, starting around about 11,000 BC, obviously all humans lived as hunter-gatherers. And from what we know from anthropology, all hunter-gatherer cultures were animist. Hmm. And that means that the people in them experienced the world in quite a different way to us modern humans. Hmm. They actually experienced the things around them being alive and conscious. As opposed to it just being a, a, a construct in the imagination just or a concept. Yeah. All things that we don't even think of as being alive, like mountains and rivers and so on. Hmm. So animism is part of shamanism. Without animism, there is no shamanism. Hmm. The shaman would have been an animist in that case, but had um, extra abilities, if you like. Hmm. The shaman not only knew that everything in this physical world is alive and conscious, hmm. albeit that consciousness may be very different to our kind of consciousness, Uh, The shaman also knew that there were worlds beyond this physical world, Hmm. what we call the shamanic realms, and had the ability through what's usually referred to as shamanic journeying to leave their body, uh, travel those worlds, interact with the beings there. So in doing that, um, it's important to understand that the shaman had a particular role in the culture as well. Mm. So they were animists. They had this ability to leave their body and travel these other realms. Uh, But none of that was done for personal gain. Mm. There is no shamanic cultures anywhere that I've ever found where there is um, versions of shamans who are hermits or sort of live, you know, in the mountains on their own or things. Mm. Shamanism is a role within society, And the role of the shaman was to be of service. Mm. So the shaman would be able to leave their body, travel to the other realms, and bring back the healing gifts and knowledge for the people. And that wasn't just for the human people either. (laughs) Uh, In shamanism, we talk about humans as just being one of a family of people. So we're actually the... We're the youngest and most naive of all of the peoples, actually. Um, we're, the, we're the naughty children, really. <laughs> um, we also have the animal people, of which obviously we're a part, uh, the plant people, uh, the standing people, who are the trees, part of the plant people, mm. and the stone people, the oldest and wisest of the people. So the shaman was uh, the intermediary between the humans and the other peoples. And the advocate of all the peoples, the person who held counsel, uh, the counsel of all the beings, basically, and helped the tribe live in right relationship with the other beings that we live with on the planet. So maintaining um, a balance uh, within an ecosystem of which we form a part. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. And it is no coincidence at all that everything that's gone wrong and the environmental disaster that we are now in um, has been ever since we started killing off our shamans or turned away from shamanism. And so let's talk a little bit about that because what I find really curious is that in recent years a lot of people in western cultures more um, let's say kind of pro-science, pro 
analytical thinking, um, secular cultures, a lot of people in these cultures have started talking about and exploring shamanic practices, quote-unquote shamanic practices, um, which many of which, the ones that remain, are in far-flung places like Latin America or mm. places in um, parts of Australia, etc. What do you think it is that that is calling people who have long lost our own native traditions, of which you know I think most cultures used to have them, um, what do you think is calling people back into that? Do you think it is this lack of right relationship uh, with our environment? Absolutely. I mean... Uh... I mean, we are facing catastrophe. Um, yes. And that's just, you know, it's the, the scale of it is just, it's, it's hard to take in. It's breathtaking. And, mm. of course, we're looking, well, any sane person is going to be looking for what on earth have we done wrong? How on earth mm. did we end up here? And how on earth can we put this right? Um, and the answers are not going to be found in the things we've been doing for the last few thousand years because they're the mm. things that have led us here. Daniel Quinn, the uh, um, author of uh, some, well, some of the books that changed my life, really, uh, he talks about something called The Great Forgetting. Hmm. And it's basically the winner's right history. Hmm. So the culture we live in, which he calls the taker culture, have written history. And uh, they basically say that uh, anything that existed before what we laughingly call civilization is just not really worth considering, really. Hmm. It was just primitive, brutish, and so on. I mean, in fact, you know, the Bible even goes to so far as to say the earth is only 6,000 years old, which <laughs> interestingly is the start of what we call civilization, city-state cultures. Ah, that's interesting. It is. Mm. I mean, we even call um, the time before the rise of the city-state cultures, we call it prehistory, as if history oh, didn't so even true. start <laughs> until 6,000 BC. Mm. The reality is that we, uh, Homo sapiens, were roughly taking a round figure, something like 200,000 years old as a species. Um, that means for the vast majority of human history, we were living as hunter-gatherers mm. in a culture that was, uh, by any sane model of cultures, was it, it had fantastic mental health from what we know. It was environmentally sustainable. Um, just all sorts of measures, basically. Mm. But we, the great forgetting is none of that exists. Mm. What we've been doing for the last 6,000 years just isn't worked. Mm. I mean, it's led us to this. So we've got to start looking to, as you say, these indigenous cultures that are left and the knowledge that they've managed to hold on to um, because that's, that's going to save us. Mm. And so when we, when we talk about these sorts of experiences, some people experience some of the things that in indigenous cultures they would recognize as shamanic experiences or experiences that call to them to enter into relationship with the natural world and be their advocates. Um, for you, one of the things I found interesting in your book is that you talk about how these, these experiences still happen, but they can actually be quite difficult to recognize because we just don't have the structures of thought or concept to, to understand them in this specific way. Mm. So, what what allowed you to understand that your early experiences were indeed these these initiatory experiences and how might other people recognize theirs potentially as being such well at the time i didn't um because i had no template for it um mm. daniel quinn also wrote uh, another, another book called uh, providence which i just recently read it's actually a, a sort of autobiography and he talks about it's only 
as you get nearer the end of your life uh, that you can look back and see all the times that your soul was really calling to you. Oh, that's interesting. And you can see also all the times where you went down sort of blind alleys or got led off the path and things and all the years you might have wasted doing things. Ooh. But if I, if I look back, shamanism was calling to me right from my early childhood, um, but I had no idea what it was. So I went to university, for instance, and uh, I actually signed up for, to do sociology, but you had to sign up for two other subjects in the first year as well. Mm. So I signed up for religious studies and opted for a course on what was then called studying primitive cultures. No idea why. I knew nothing about it. <laughs> it just the sense of wanting to explore it. Exactly, yeah. Mm. And just thing after thing after thing in my life uh, like that. But it's only with hindsight I can see it. Mm. So even at university when we were studying what we called primitive cultures. We didn't use the word shamanism then, but absolutely what we were studying were shamanic cultures. Mm. It wasn't um, until probably my mid to late 20s that I started to sort of twig um, that there's a bit of a thread here, a bit of a theme. <laughs> so the characteristic, I would say, because um, not all spiritual experiences are shamanic, uh, the characteristic of a shamanic experience is this experience experience it's not a belief or a leap of faith it's an experience that the things around you are conscious mm. not in the same way that humans are and that's one of our great narcissisms as a species is to only recognize consciousness if it's like ours yes um, but plants are conscious mountains have a consciousness uh, it's just very different to us for me, is, is a characteristic of shamanic experience and that, that it's this waking up to the fact that the world around you is live and also that there are realms beyond this one. That's, I mean, it's fascinating because I think a lot of people listening to this um, may find it really difficult to get their heads around this idea of um, other beings being conscious or other beings having their own inner lives I think because we're so used to thinking of the world as this warehouse of resources that we use up at our um I suppose it's our beck and call I think and this kind of this sense of dominion which yeah. actually is indeed put in the bible and other places this idea of dominion and hierarchy that we somehow think that we're better than as opposed to um a part of this wider web of life um, yeah, all terrible stories that we tell ourselves. Mm, but yeah, really uh, quite damaging stories. And so I wonder, what are some of the ways in which your practice, um, especially in the early days maybe, shaped or changed your perception of our relationship with the world and moving away from this sense of resource and we're humans and we're the only ones with an access to soul or whatever it might be, to this more enriched version of what life is? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> going back to the things being conscious but different to us mm. um we think of science as being very rational and things but actually it, it operates in uh what's the philosopher um, kuhn called uh, paradigms that uh, scientists have raised in these paradigms don't tend to think outside them mm. so we think that uh consciousness is like something that we possess and so there's a test scientists do on whether other to find out if other animals are conscious. So they might put a sticker on an animal's forehead and mm. show it a mirror. Mm. 
Mm. And if the animal can recognise itself in the mirror and then take the sticker off, that's a conscious animal. Mm. So chimpanzees will do it and ravens will do it and so on. Slugs tend not to. <laughs> so we think they're not conscious. Yeah. All we've measured is self-consciousness. Mm. Okay. To understand how other things are consciousness, you have to think beyond self-awareness and think in terms of collective awareness. Uh, so an individual blade of grass has no consciousness, but for shamans, a plant like grass is a planet-wide being. Hmm. It has a huge consciousness. Um, an interesting, that's, um, what's the guy's name? at Sapiens. Uh, oh, Yuval Noah Harari. Fantastic book. I mean, even he, I mean, he's no, he's not seemingly very spiritual or sort of mystical. Even he uh, ponders in his book Sapiens about grass being conscious mm. just because of the way it's manipulated us in mm, a way. Mm. If you look what it's got us to do, it's quite astonishing. In terms of cultivation of things like wheat and, yeah. yes. Um, so who's who's manipulated who here? So there's a Star Trek episode. Oh, I love Star um, Trek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where the Enterprise is boarded. Mm. Uh, well, things start going wrong on the Enterprise, and they eventually realise that the Enterprise has been boarded by these aliens who move at an incredibly fast mm. speed, so fast that they're undetectable. Yes. So to those aliens... Uh, the Enterprise and the crew and things, they're just lumps of inanimate matter. Oh, that's so interesting. So recently, there's some scientists have really started doing some amazing research about how intelligent plants are. Um, the stuff that's coming out is just quite extraordinary. And one of the scientists says that the reason we've not realised it before is just because we haven't slowed down enough. Huh. <laughs> that's so fascinating. <laughs> really want to understand what it's like to be a plant you've got to a stop thinking in terms of individuality you've got to think in terms of the species mm. it's the species that's conscious and b you've got to think in a completely different time scale mm. now take that even further think about understanding the consciousness of stone mm. just think about how much you have to slow down to do that mm. so i'm a psychotherapist as well and so when, if I'm working with a client and I'm not really resonating with them, I just don't get them or I just don't understand them. Uh, if I become conscious of that, what I would do as a psychotherapist is try to really get inside them, mm -hmm. to really put myself in what would it be been like to have been raised in the way they were raised, mm -hmm. to face their choices, to walk in their shoes and so on. And when you do that, um, what happens is empathy. Mm. So shamanism is a very similar thing. We call it shape-shifting. So on a shamanic journey, you can go and say you want to understand what it's like to be an oak tree. Mm. You can First off, you've got to really slow down. And then you've got to stop thinking in terms of animal. You've got to stop thinking in terms of there's places to go, things to do. You've got to hunt food and things because trees don't have any of that. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, there's no agenda. Now, just think what that would be like. <laughs> Sounds quite peaceful, actually. <laughs> yeah, and then the time scale yeah, that they live. Yeah. And if you do that, you can start to get into what it's like to be a tree. And clearly, this is in a sentient being. It's just sentient in different ways. I think also what's really fascinating, one of the threads I'd like to pull on is this idea that um, 
the way that we conceive of intelligence and awareness and aliveness is very individualistic and self-oriented, certainly in more individualistic yeah. cultures. And all the research that's coming out around, um, for instance, the book that was written called The Hidden Life of Trees, entire uh, forests communicate with one another. And this, this sense of mm. us being so um, limited, sadly, in our scope of what our experience might be like, that we project that onto others and therefore limit the possibility of what exists beyond us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So what are some of the ways in which people who are not necessarily familiar with shamanic practice can start to reframe their experience of the natural living world so they can enter a different kind of relationship with it? Well, I I mean, that book you mentioned is fantastic read. I mean, it's it's just eye-opening. I mean, I, I don't know because... I see us waking up to this stuff all over the place, but the only bit I really can contribute to is the shamanic aspect of it. So my small contribution as it is, is to do the thing that I could do, which is to teach people how to do shamanic journeys. Um, And then in shamanic journeys, you just literally experience this stuff. And the fascinating thing is, I mean, I've taught hundreds and hundreds of beginners days now. And although the shaman was somebody who had sort of extra abilities, everybody in a tribe once would have been an animist. They would have experienced the world as being alive. Mm. When I teach an intro day, I start off saying, by, by lunchtime, you will have been able to do a shamanic journey and you will have met and become an animal and experienced what it is like. And people think that's ridiculous. By lunchtime, 99.99% of people have done it. And do you think people, are people very surprised at their capacity for this seemingly quite um, extraordinary experience? Yeah, absolutely. It's mind-blowing. People <laughs> are just aghast at what they've done. But to be honest, I mean, I've been doing this, you know, decades, and it still amazes <laughs> me. Mm. It's just astonishing. But it's not that difficult. Most people can do this to some extent uh, because it's what we used to do. It's mm. how we used to be. Being like that is normal, yeah, in terms of the scale of human history. How we are in the modern world is not normal. Mm. It's just the last 6,000 years have been a total aberration, you know. Mm. This isn't normal. It is normal for us to experience things around us as being alive and conscious. And what have been some of the most um, powerful experiences that you've facilitated for for people who have been quite unfamiliar with this practice and then they've come in and they've had something quite, I don't know, ground-shifting happen happen in in these situations? Well, um... (laughs) <laughs> Interesting. I mean, I have seen all sorts of astonishing things happen. Um, I can imagine. But honestly, I mean, I could tell stories about, you know, weird things, but it, it kind of gives the wrong impression of it, I think. Because I think the thing that's really astonishing around it are the small things um, and the way they eventually build up to profoundly change you. So, for instance, people, when they start off in shamanic work, are always worried about, am I making this up? Yes. And when you start off journeying, you are making a lot of it up. But there will be something that happens in a journey. You'll come across a particular plant or stone or something. Sometimes it's a plant you don't even know consciously. You have to uh, Google pictures of it and try and identify it. Then when you read up on what the healing properties of that thing is, uh, your jaw drops open. I mean, it (laughs) it it is astonishing. 
And this happens not every journey, but every other journey, uh, or sort of you know one journey and three and things. It's, it's stuff you just didn't consciously of any way of knowing uh, is absolutely spot on, and that makes you start to realise there is something real about this. This is um, really. Uh, there's something behind all this. But there's something that comes into consciousness which they didn't have access to, that's something they couldn't have known. Yeah. Um, and it's the reason we think this is impossible is because we think in terms of separation. Um, hmm. Take consciousness, for instance. So let's talk about um, scientific paradigms. So in science, the normal paradigm, what Kuhn calls normal science, the dominant science of any given era, uh, the normal science says that consciousness is a product of complex brains. Mm. It's about our complex brains and brain activity. There is literally no scientific evidence for this anywhere, like literally none. And this is it's it's based on materialistic thinking and about separation and on on what Derek Jensen, the brilliant Derek Jensen, calls the myth of human supremacy. Mm. Uh, a much older idea is animism or its various forms, uh, um, panpsychism, which goes right back to Plato, or um, new term Steve Taylor, the author's coming up with this, panspiritism, is what if consciousness is actually what the universe is made of? And that what we are are simply receptors of consciousness. Hmm. Kind of like the way that a radio would be picking up signal that was already existing. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So the idea then that you could go into an altered state of consciousness where you're receptive and then retrieve information about a plant or an animal or something that you knew nothing about makes perfect sense. There's no problem. And actually it's interesting when you think about it in fairly modern terms. So a lot of Carl Jung's work about the collective unconscious and, and the stories that people write about, especially um, people who are poets or artists or musicians, who talk about shared stories that pop up at different parts of the world at the same time. Like these ideas exist somehow yeah. and are just waiting to be embodied in some form. Yeah. I mean, you do hear these stories of, of such extraordinary things happening. Or maybe they're not extraordinary. Maybe that's just our misconception. Well, they're only extraordinary if we think in terms of separation. If we think in terms mm. of collective consciousness, then it makes perfect sense. It's like a Rupert Sheldrake, 100 Monkeys. Mm. Once uh, a, a certain number of monkeys or whatever it is learn something uh, then it just starts popping up all over the world basically so Sheldrake did some experiments where he um, they had two identical mazes uh, that rats could run and uh, so rats in New York learnt the maze and so when they released the rats if you like in uh, in London those rats learnt the maze quicker because the rats in New York had already learnt it. I mean that's a fascinating idea that that's yeah, that that's even possible is a fascinating idea. But it, yeah. <laughs> it makes perfect sense if you stop thinking in terms of separation. So how much do you think this paradigm shift is necessary for us to change the way that we're relating with the world now? So changing the way that we consume, changing the way that our political and economic structures are set up. So this idea that actually there isn't such a separateness between us and our natural world and all our more than human kin. Without it, we're we're doomed. I mean, we're literally. It is. Uh, there's a book I've just stored it off Amazon. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's basically about the research. It's far, far worse than most people realise. Mm. It's like we are not going to survive this. Uh, it's essential. And so I often hear people say, as well, in shamanism, or other, you know, well, all sorts of people say, actually, that might be a blessing. You know, if if we die out, you know. 
life will continue you know mm. we actually may be a some just horrible virus or you know that, that may mm. be true in terms of the human race but the problem for me is that we are going to take down something like 90 percent of the other plant and animal species on the planet with us mm. i mean what's called the anthropocene extinction it's that the figures are you know there may be one a week every day basically so it matters not just to us it matters um so we have to start changing our paradigm uh, mm. the way we think about things we've got to tell ourselves different stories the stories we've been telling ourselves for the last few thousand years are just terrible and so how do you think we we begin to take back these stories because you mentioned earlier about how history is written by the winners which yeah. you know we all know if especially if we belong to any non-majority group um so what are some of the stories that we can start to tell and how might we be able to start to to live by those stories and to spread them and share them well i think the first starting point is to recognize the bad stories because um, hmm. uh, the we are s soaked in them they're so we take them so for granted we just think these are true and they're not so things like the myth of human supremacy i mean that is a been a devastatingly bad story uh, not just to us but <laughs> every other thing on the planet uh, and it's just no hunter gatherers believed that human beings were superior stories about hierarchies are normal hunter gatherers were not hierarchical uh, uh, stories that inequality is acceptable mm. hunter gatherer tribes had no inequality at all uh, so there's a whole pile of stories. The idea that um, up is good, down is bad. So mm. spirit is good, earth is bad. Uh, that often then gets translated into men are good, women are bad, and so on. Mm. So mm. stories that lead to patriarchy. Uh, there's a whole pile of stories we've got to get rid of. Um, and then, yes, we need to put better stories in their place. So Daniel Quinn talks about the great forgetting, mm. but he says, so what we need is the great remembering. And this, to remember that we were not always like this. We're not, this is, we've gone temporarily mad, we're ill. <laughs> uh, but this is not who we are as a species, because we've got hundreds of thousands of years of peaceful human existence on the planet. We do need healthy stories, we're not going to find them uh, by looking back over the last few thousand years. Mm. All hunter-gatherer cultures well, have some versions of a sort of golden era where their ancestors were wiser and uh, had just had more powers and lived in better harmony with nature and so on. And um, we need... We need stories like that again. We need a template. So sometimes people say that I have a rosy view of hunter-gatherers. I, I don't at all. Um, I mean, I've studied different tribes. I, you know, there were things about that life that were hard. But we need to think about the difference between logos and mythos. So logos are things that are factually true. Mythos are things that are stories that we need. Mm. So if we look at logos... Hunter-gatherer tribes were not saintly, you know, it wasn't a, some angelic <laughs> existence. It was hard and tough and things. But there's no hunter-gatherer tribe ever destroyed the environment it lived in, ever. Mm. Where city-state cultures do it all the time. Um, they had 
excellent mental health as far as we know. They had no word for depression in many cultures. Um, they had uh, no social inequality to speak of. Uh, women and men were treated with equal respect and so on. So the fact is, just in terms of actual facts, that culture is healthier than any culture that's existed since. And yet we're so bought into these these ways of living now, this idea of civilization being superior, yeah. the idea of these structures yeah. being superior, when actually there's huge suffering all over the world. Um, and, in you know, it's, it's completely unstable, unsustainable. Um, yeah. So... Go back to mythos. Um, we also need, we need to do like our ancestors did. We need a template. We need um, uh, a myth of how we should live. Mm. For me, looking back at hunter gatherer culture is both logos. It was actually realistically far better, more sustainable, mm. as you say, culture than ours. Uh, but also, it's a good myth to have because it gives us templates, then stories that we can base a healthier saner culture on so stories about how power should be used properly stories about what good leaders actually would look like and what might those things look like in our modern culture do you think well we think leaders um should be psychopaths and narcissists mm -hmm. i mean that's the last people we should be giving that power to Leadership should be about eldership and the ability to facilitate um, and act for the greater good. Um, we have um, or just all sorts of stories like we need to stop saying up as good and down as bad. We need to stop mm -hmm. denigrating the earth. We, uh, stories about service to the earth rather than plundering it. Mm -hmm. So some really fundamental, really fundamental realignments yeah. of, of understanding. Um, I'd like to ask another question that's kind of uh, may seem like a bit of a tangential question, but relating to this and relating to the earlier idea around people seeking this kind of stuff out, which I also, I mean, I've been interested in this since my early, my very early 20s. Um, in our search for these sorts of new ways, or I should say really old ways mm -hmm. of looking at things and connecting with things, um, I personally have experienced, and I know many of my friends have experienced, um, workshops and practices and processes designed to create these sorts of environments where we can in enjoy and learn from shamanic journeying and mm -hmm. other forms of more traditional practices. And yet, one of the things that I keep hearing about again and again, and that you also mentioned in your book, which was in some ways quite reassuring to me, just because it means that I'm not the odd one out, is that there are so many breaches of ethical conduct and in extreme cases abuse in, in these arenas where people are potentially quite vulnerable, seeking for a new way to live. Um, and these are deep things. So this, this seeming lack of ethic and abuse of power in some of these arenas, how and why do you think these spring up? Do you think that this kind of work also attracts such behaviours? Um, you mentioned earlier sort of like the leader's psychopathic and narcissistic traits and I've also encountered people like this in these arenas. Or do you think it's maybe a lack of regulatory structure that creates an environment in which this sort of conduct can flourish unchecked? It's categorically not the latter. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, it's uh, putting it in a 
bigger context, I don't think shamanism is any worse than a lot of other things in this case. I mm. mean, if, you know, look at religions, for goodness sake, mm. you know, the lack of ethics, look at new age stuff, look at gurus, look at, you know. Yes. The, the problem is we live in a culture that has a, a completely messed up relationship with power. We live in a culture of power over and powerlessness. Mm. Uh, hunter-gatherer culture was based on power from within. Mm. Nobody had power over anybody else in that sense. Uh, so we live in a human culture where people have power over other people. We have power then over animals and plants and so on. And this is one of the stories that we have to change is, is this, the stories you tell us about power. Mm. So I don't, yeah, it's not to do with shamanism. It's just everywhere um, people abuse power. Um, in terms of regulatory structure, that's just buying into the same model again. Mm-hmm. I mean, regulatory structures is just another power over model. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that sense, but yes. And <laughs> I mean, I'm a psychotherapist as well. So I've witnessed the birth of things like the BACP and things, the regulatory bodies in this country, because people thought, you know, there's no regulation. People can, therapists can do whatever they want. It's terrible. And absolutely nothing good as, that I can see has come out of the last, whatever it is, 40 years of regulation. Mm. Um, therapists aren't any more ethical because you can't impose stuff like that on people. Mm. Um, in fact, complaints uh, on therapists have gone up and up and up and up and up. Now, if regulation made therapists more ethical, why is that? Mm. All it's done is create a punitive structure. The The regulatory bodies, most of them are just protection rackets mm. and just impose this top-down model that just doesn't work. It's just more the same thing. So if people did want to find practitioners that were operating from this, uh, from this desire to empower people who are coming to them, this idea of empowering mm. from within their clients... What are some of the things that you think may be useful to look out for to go, okay, well, maybe these are some of the qualities that we may seek because we're having to change a model. It it can be quite challenging at times. I mean, really, I get asked a lot to recommend other practitioners and um, Mm. I can only recommend the ones that I know personally and have worked with. So I know the people on my practitioner register, I know they work ethically. Um, I'm absolutely sure there are other ethical practitioners out there. but really, the only way you're going to know that is through word of mouth. Um, yeah, and relationship. <laughs> yeah, pieces of paper just don't mean a thing. Um, so, okay, so when it comes to modern day initiation, I've mm. heard some fascinating, quite difficult stories of people who've experienced some kind of awakening through traumatic or life-threatening events. Um, why do you think this happens in this way? <sighs> That's not a great question. Uh, it comes back to one of the, when I was right at the beginning, was going through um, what actually shamanism means. The one I didn't mm. get to talk about was uh, one of the roles of the shaman is to be the person who's outside of society. So societies obviously are uh, functioned by a whole series of um, social mores, norms, laws, customs, stories myths and so on that they tell themselves yeah so shamans say things are as they are because of the stories that thing is telling itself so our culture tells us these stories and we buy into them what tribes always knew 
is that most people in a tribe have to believe the stories because otherwise the, the, the tribe just wouldn't work. But there has to be somebody outside of it, somebody who knows these are just stories, somebody who, when the stories are going wrong and no longer working, can change them. Mm. So the shaman was somebody who was um, almost like deprogrammed in a way. So part of the, in a shamanic culture, for instance, as part of your shamanic training, you might have to wear your clothes inside out or back to front for a while. You might have to ride your horse backwards. You'd stand when other people were sitting and sit when they stood and so on. Mm. All sorts of other things that would shock you out of normal behavior. That would decondition you in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you're really going to get shamanism, it's not something you can just graft onto current thinking. You have to be outside of it to some extent. Um, and that's why most people, when they really get shamanism, it's because they've been deconstructed in some way by a uh, near-death experience, by a breakdown, by uh, something that shatters them. I mean, that's absolutely how I ended up coming to it, was through well, two and a half near-death experiences wow. and a total another breakdown in wow. my midlife um, that just shattered any idea of who I was. And from that shattering and opening, then a growth that's new and different. Yeah, yeah. based on different stories, healthier stories, um, uh, based on a healthier relationship with the, the other peoples and so on. Wow. That's why, I mean, a lot of uh, indigenous people say, who on earth would want to be a shaman? Because it's the process of getting there is... Difficult. Difficult, often. <laughs> Not all of my students have had to walk as traumatic a path as that, mm. uh, but it certainly is common. I do wonder this, yeah. Like, to what extent is this something which is... Um, necessary in everyone's path of shamanic practice uh because there's also other kinds of more chronic traumas that happen over longer time maybe with sort of certain different kinds yeah. of punctuating life events as opposed to something quite as Absolutely. extraordinary as as near-death experience yeah it doesn't have to be dramatic i mean i can be a bit <laughs> of a drama queen so that, i guess that was my path and also i didn't have a teacher as well um, I mean, I'm very careful with my students. You know, I know that they've got jobs to do and mortgages to pay and things as well. So the way I try to teach it is a set of incremental step-by-step -step practices. Um, and what I do know about this stuff is it actually does work. It absolutely changes you more than any. I mean, I've I've been all sorts of things in my life. I've practiced Buddhism. I've been a, uh, was into Franciscan Christianity, all sorts of things. This stuff changes you. It's it's like applied psychology. It really changes you. And it doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be step by step, but it really does change you. And what would you say, if I can ask probably an impossible question, um, what would you say has been the most enriching change that you've experienced through your shamanic practice? Mm. Well, at first I was going to say just actually knowing that everything around me is alive and conscious. Um, I mean, that's pretty profound. But actually, I'm going to be more selfish than that. I'm going to say it's uh, it, it's finding my what my soul really is. Um, if you one of the practices uh, my guides taught me, uh, which I now teach my students, is um, 
if you imagine, what if this craziness of what we call civilization had never happened? What if we were still living as hunter-gatherers? Hunter-gatherer cultures needed people to work as a team, to feel happy and, you know, part of the community and so on. What if you were being brought up in a hunter-gatherer tribe here? And a tribe that wanted you to blossom into whatever it is you were really meant to be for your unique qualities to really grow and thrive so that they could be find their place and use in the tribe. Mm. Okay. Uh, what if you didn't feel superior to nature? What if you lived in a community of the more than human people in that interconnected way? If you think about who you would have been what's that person like what was she she or he be like as an adult and then make them real really really get to know them uh, visualize them as clearly as you possibly can so when you're going about your life ask him or her what would you do here what would your advice be here how would should i approach this best um, and gradually bit by bit over time, if you make this a living practice, you start to become that person. Mm. Okay, and that's your soul. That's who you were meant to be. And that is, well, it's just an astonishing gift to find, really, uh, to live a life of authenticity. I guess that's, that's what, on a personal level, I would say is the most precious gift of shamanism. That sounds very poetic and very beautiful and deeply moving. <laughs> yeah. mm. So with that in mind, um, and also we're coming to time, I'm kind of lost in our lovely conversation. I have three questions that I'd like to close by asking you. Okay. The first of which, um, in a brief, well, if one can be brief with these things, in a brief summation, what do you think is your biggest concern for the future? The Anthropocene extinction. Without a doubt. That we continue and it just, it just, yeah, and it just happens. There are, est the estimates are something between 30 to 300 species going extinct every single day mm. because of human activity. Like one a day would be a tragedy. One a year wouldn't be right. Yeah. 30 to 300 a day. Mm. It's just beyond horrific, mm. and that—that that is my greatest fear: is that we are murdering the world around us. Mm. What vision are you working towards achieving? Well, all I can do is do my little bit, really. Um, Derek Johnson says uh, he's often asked, "Why don't you teach?" And he says, "It's because I'm a massive introvert. Teachers like you know the worst thing I can imagine. What I can do is write." You know, other people are now are writing novels about this stuff. Other people are campaigning and, you know, raising money. And You have to find what it is you can do. Uh, so for me, uh, well, it was teaching, um, but I've realized I can uh, get these ideas out to a lot more people by writing. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, um, most shamanic books are just a beginner's book over and over again basically um, or occasionally you get some more specialist bits uh, but what there isn't as far as I'm aware of is a comprehensive body of knowledge like you would have been taught as an apprentice shaman in a tribe mm. 
Um, so my, what I'm trying to do is, is before I die, leave behind a comprehensive body of shamanic teaching. It'll be at least a dozen books just to cover the basics. Amazing. But is shamanism applied to modern day life? Because we, what our ancestors all did with shamanism was take it and apply it to the environment they, and times they lived in. And we have to do the same. We have to make it relevant. And that, that's my contribution to this, basically. And to make it really accessible as I can. Um, so that's my vision. Which I think you've achieved beautifully. Thank you. <laughs> In your first two books, they're the only two that I've worked on. But um, yeah. I have been um, genuinely blown away. I have been received. So that's really great. <laughs> Encouragement yeah. on your path. Um, so for people listening today who may or may not be familiar with shamanic practice, what single action would you suggest that we can take as individuals to build a more resilient future? Well... Derek Jensen said, um, find the things you love and fight for them. Mm. I would add to that, find who you are first. Do that practice about how would you have been if you'd have been brought up in a hunter-gatherer tribe? Who's that person? And from that place, find what you can contribute and then find the things you love and fight for them. Be their champion. Mm. Yeah, be their advocate. Uh, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, for you it might be your garden and making it insect-friendly and getting to know the plants and giving them homes and things, or it might be something, you know, on a bigger social scale. or so. But whatever it is, find what you can do to help. Um, that's got to be personal to whatever your gifts are, really. Wonderful. So um, if people want to find out more, um, they can visit your website, therapeutic-shamanism.co.uk. Um, you've got two books currently out, The Shamanic Journey, which is a practical guide to therapeutic shamanism, and Rewilding Yourself, both of which I will link to in the show notes. Where else do you think it would be useful to point people towards if they want to find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, on the website, I'm starting to include a page with links to other places, basically, sort of other interesting videos and articles and things. Um, you can also sign up for the newsletter and um, the third book I'm working on at the moment. I'm hoping to get it out in the summer and then the fourth book, oh. hopefully by the end of it. I'm basically I'm trying, I don't know whether it's possible, to get two a year out because I'm you know, aware of how many <laughs> need to be done really. So you can sign up for the newsletter. Um, you can find out about courses on the website. Uh, once I've got... And the third or fourth book out, then the plan is to start doing some online support as well, so people can sign up for online tutorials and um, seminars and things. Mm -hmm. So go to the website and sign up for the newsletter. All right, sounds good. Um, well, just suffice it to say thank you very much for talking with me today and for sharing your stories and your insights. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's been great, actually. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.